Have you ever gone somewhere and felt unwelcome or unwanted? Have you ever known an event was happening and not been invited? What about going into a space that clearly wasn't designed with you in mind? Every day, individuals with disabilities encounter inaccessible spaces and environments. By inaccessible, I mean everything from an office with bright fluorescent lights or two small cubicles to a building that can only be accessed by stairs to networking events with multiple social interactions and queues happening simultaneously to the websites on a person's very own computer. Individuals with disabilities are regularly excluded from a whole host of opportunities and interactions. And while we could speak about all of the ways in which American society is structured to be inaccessible and exclusionary, we'll be focusing on people's experiences at work, as well as the lack of opportunities to work. According to a news release put out by the United States Department of Labor's Bureau of Labor Statistics, as of the end of 2021, 19.1% of persons with a disability were employed, which means that 80.9% of individuals with a disability were not. On the other hand, 63.7% of individuals without a disability were employed, which points to a huge disparity in opportunities. And this doesn't even take underemployment into account, which, according to Forbes.com and other sources, is a rampant problem amongst disabled workers who are often not afforded the same opportunities for expansion, education, and advancement as their non-disabled counterparts. I'm Darylise Lyons, and I live with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, a chronic illness that sometimes limits my functionality. But I'll tell you more about EDS later, since it came up during one of the interviews for this episode. In the meantime, before moving into today's topic, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm speaking to you today from the ancestral lands of the Lenape people and to thank Indigenous people, past, present, and future, for their resilience and their contributions to a nation that was built on stolen land using stolen labor. This is episode two of season three of the Demystifying Diversity podcast, brought to you in partnership with Temple University's Fox School of Business Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture, also known as Sedwick. This episode is Brain and Body Diversity, Accessibility and Disability Readiness, or Lack Thereof. Bev Weinberg, founder and executive director of Integrate for Good, is an occupational therapist with a passion for enhancing community engagement with a special focus on partnering with individuals with developmental disabilities. Now in the economy we're in, you see help wanted signs everywhere and 80% of people with autism are unemployed and want to work. So there's this huge breakdown between the needs in the community and people that could meet them, but really don't have those doors open for them yet. So we try to say like, hey, let's look at (laughs) these two things and do something about it because we could solve problems on both sides. Tom Edwards concurs. Tom is an associate professor of instruction in engineering management and director of the Department of Engineering, Technology, and Management at Temple University. And he's an organizational expert who utilizes research, practical application, and teaching to drive innovation in the pursuit of organizational missions. I've been working a lot, thinking a lot about the topic of neurodiversity and, you know, autism spectrum disorder and the 85% unemployment rate amongst these folks. That's unfair. That's unfair to these people. It's just not a sustainable status quo. 
and some portion of it, not all of it, there's, it's a complicated issue and there's a lot of, lot of aspects to it, but some of it is just management, just leadership. My argument has always been, since I've been involved in that issue for almost a decade now, that for a reasonably skilled manager to take on making a neurodiverse person fit into their workplace, it's not a big deal. It's not a heavy lift. It's a minor modification. As you'll hear later, although Tom is neurotypical, he owes at least some of his professional success to the contributions of his non-neurotypical colleagues. And if you're wondering why I cited the unemployment rate for individuals with disabilities as 80.9%, Bev cited 80%, and Tom 85%, it's because... Different sources have different numbers, but statistics are striking. Approximately... I think more than half of people that we are actually are in our in our star, in our population, they actually end up not even having jobs very soon after graduating from high school. So they go through those programs that are kind of trying to help finding jobs and keeping jobs. But uh, I think the support so that kind of is not really as good as as it could be. So usually, you know, neurodiverse people graduating from from high school, they would get a few months of support, and then they would be expected to go on and build their careers. So it turns out that there are so many obstacles uh, at multiple places that actually results finally in in, uh, most of them, a majority, not having sustained careers. And apparently, jobs are very important because I think somehow for humans, uh, you know, having a job is a very important thing, right? It means uh, that, you know, you're a productive member of society, you believe you have some worth, and you also kind of, this is your opportunity to socialize uh, with other human beings. Uh, So I think there are kind of many, many benefits in addition to earning money. That was Slobodan Vucetic, director of the Center for Hybrid Intelligence and a professor in the Department of Computer and Information Sciences at Temple University. Slobodan is spearheading a multidisciplinary team at Temple, and his team at Temple was awarded $2.3 million from the National Science Foundation to develop software that will provide job assistance for those with neurodevelopmental disabilities. And to this point, society is failing individuals with disabilities by not creating more opportunities for meaningful work. And that failure has personal and societal ramifications. The CDC reports that 26% of adults in the United States, so one in four of us, has some type of disability, a fact that has broad implications in terms of how we ought to be structuring and modifying not only our workplaces, but all of American society. Studies and research show that one in four of us has a sensory need, whether it be autism, anxiety, ADHD, dementia, Parkinson's, cystic fibrosis, Down syndrome, and even a whole host of other rare genetic or undiagnosed conditions. That was Uma Suravastava, COO of Culture City, an organization that is dedicated to making the nevers possible by creating sensory accessibility and inclusion for those with invisible disabilities. Uma is passionate about eradicating stigma and expanding opportunities for inclusion through awareness and intervention. She is also co-chair for the 2022 World Games Disability Inclusion and Access Committee and co-chair for the Backpacks Project at Rotary Nashville. 
Uma herself has sensory needs, and she told me that being employed by an organization such as Culture City has helped her to better understand her needs and to improve her performance and mental health because she's not trying to compartmentalize or hide. Throughout this episode, you'll hear references to a wide range of needs and disabilities, some physical, some neurological, some emotional. That's because as an identity category, the word disability describes a complex, nuanced, wide-ranging set of conditions and considerations. It's an expansive category that spans many different visible and invisible experiences and can also be a fluid identity with people moving into and out of various disabilities throughout their lifetime. In fact, many, if not most of us, will, over the course of our lifetimes, experience either a temporary or a permanent disability. And so while we'll be exploring accessibility and disability readiness in the workplace, before we move into systemic considerations, I'd like to talk about individual experiences, starting with my own. As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, I live with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, a chronic medical condition. And if you weren't aware of that, that's because it's something I rarely ever speak about. Like several of the other people you'll hear in this episode, I've been conditioned to conceal that aspect of myself. But I'd like to be open now, so I'll share a snippet of my conversation with Elizabeth Smith, a graduate of Rollins College who double majored in music and communication and is a current participant in the Accelerate Graduate Studies program, currently obtaining a Master of Public Health degree, which she'll receive by 2024. Elizabeth is also a disability advocate and researcher. I actually have a disability. I don't talk about it all that often. I have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. I've had it my entire life. And what I have found though, is that for me specifically with my disability, I move in and out of symptoms. So there's periods of time where I feel like I don't require any accommodations. And then there's periods of times where my physical functioning is just not what it had been a week before, you know, what it will be two weeks from now. And I'm so curious if you notice if there's a difference for people who's, or maybe even in your own experience, if there's been a difference where your experience of your disability or someone's experience of their disability sort of symptoms or needs isn't static, like is more fluid. Because for me, that's been a a source of maybe confusion in my own identity because Mm -hmm. I feel different depending on the day or the week or the month or the year. I also have EDS as well. So this was a theme that got brought up in our research. A lot of our participants talked about this idea of how certain days are better for them than others and how people think they're faking when they do it that way. Or that's why they think I'm not disabled enough or I can't qualify as disabled in, as that identity because it's not. It's not something that's the same every day. And it tends to be that way with disability. It just depends on how you're feeling. Side note, Elizabeth is the only person I've ever met who, like me, lives with EDS. Well, at least she's the only person that I know of. Sadly, because of various social stigmas and the often concealable nature of disabilities, many of those of us who live with disabilities, chronic illness, or physical, mental, or emotional limitations and or needs can hide and do hide those aspects of our vast multidimensional identities or we might hide our symptoms and needs. At one point, Elizabeth went to such extreme lengths to conceal her disability that she jeopardized her health. I decided I didn't like the way 
that people were acting and I didn't like myself. It, it just didn't feel like me because it was this totally different identity than I experienced before that I said that I'm going to try to not use my wheelchair. And I actually went as extreme as saying, I'm not going to even take my, my medication for my heart. And so that was where I was at, at the end of my first year. Then we go to my sophomore year. And I remember telling certain professors that knew me prior, I'm trying to trick my mind to saying that I'm quote normal. And even though trying to get around campus was a lot harder for me. And actually by the end of that week, I was actually sick. And I wrote a poem even about it, talking about pushing the piano up those stairs. I continued to not use my wheelchair because I did not want to have this a part of, of who I was just because it didn't feel like me for the longest time. And not only that, but people didn't treat me differently when they didn't see the wheelchair. And the people that knew me the year before, students, some professors, they were happy for me, they said. They're like, oh, I'm so glad you're healed, is the types of things that I was receiving, which kind of continued to say to me that it's almost as if people think of you as better if you're not using a mobility aid. Even though Elizabeth was harming herself by not using a mobility aid or taking her medication, she received positive feedback for being quote-unquote healed. Likewise, Alita Miranda Wolf also risked her health by concealing her disability and forcing herself to push her body to function. Alita is the author of Cultures of Belonging, Building Inclusive Organizations That Last, and she's the CEO and founder of Ethos, a diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging firm dedicated to closing the opportunity gap for underrepresented and underserved groups. I have hidden my disability to a degree that some folks have found appalling. I am that person who brought my computer to the emergency room more than once, who took calls when I was hooked up to IVs. There was a level of hiding, of covering that came from the deep-rooted knowledge that I would be perceived as less productive, not a good performer, and the idea of asking for mental space, which is something my team members do all the time now, I'm happy to give it to them, but in part because I know that that would have been something that would have showed up in my review as a justification for underperformance. And I learned to hide myself and it made me very successful. And I don't forget that, that I was able to reach sort of what some people have called career pinnacles early in my life came from being really, really, really good at being somebody else. Demystify diversity, making work safe for you and me. Shoulder to shoulder, we embark. Invite the light to send the dark. Let's embrace one another. Single colleagues, working mothers, people of all points of view. Can we see each other? As Alita shared, hiding her disability came at significant personal cost, but it also furthered her professional career. 
According to the Center for Talent Innovation's Disability and Inclusion Study, as cited in the Harvard Business Review, only 39% of employees with disabilities have disclosed their disability to their manager. Even fewer, 24 and 21% respectively, have disclosed to their teams and HR. And only a fractional 4% have revealed their disability to their clients. When we account for the fact that 13% of working individuals with disabilities have visible disabilities, those of us who are actively not sharing this element of ourselves are the overwhelming majority, which can at once feel like a privilege and a source of pain. There's so much societal stigma and stereotypes about disabilities embedded into us unconsciously that we're kind of swimming upstream both ways in the sleet and the snow. That was Tanner Gears, president and founder of Accessibility Officer, a data-driven disability inclusion firm who helps companies drive ability, DNI, and maximize ROI. Tanner also serves as a board member for Menus for All and recently co-authored Foresight Augmented Reality's solution proposal for the U.S. Department of Transportation's Inclusive Design Challenge. Tanner is a U.S. Paralympian World Championship team member as well. Tanner sat down for a joint interview with his strategic business partner, Will Bubinek. Will is the founder and CEO of Nebula Media Group, whose mission it is to ensure that websites are accessible so that people with disabilities can access them. From audits and fixes to training and coaching, Nebula Media Group provides customized accessibility solutions so companies can attain, maintain, and sustain a true accessibility and compliance program at their organizations. Because Tanner, Elizabeth, and Alita all have the experience of living with and without a disability, they were able to speak about the contrast, both in terms of how they perceived themselves and how others have treated them. It's an incredibly unique opportunity to wear two different pairs of life shoes and understand what that means from the perspective of, you know, how the world works and you have a framework for that and you're able to do certain things um, within that framework and succeed. Then one day with these new pair of shoes on, all of a sudden you look different. People talk to you different. People expect difference. And because of this new difference, you become oppressed and segregated and discriminated against. And it really helped me wake up to my privilege and really understand like, holy moly, I feel so blessed to have the faculties that I have considering my TBI that ultimately resulted in me losing my sight. It's like, man, some people just don't have the drive, the ambition, the resolve, the ability to communicate and articulate oneself and express oneself and be competitive and and have confidence within one's ability. College was the first time that I was going to be, since I developed a disability, would be my first time being on campus doing things daily. And so this transition was quite significant for me. And this was actually the first time that I was using a wheelchair full-time as well. And so I had to adjust to what does that look like? This was the first time that I actually saw a distinction between when people see the disability and they don't. When I started using my wheelchair full-time, there were two different distinctual things that I noticed the most. There is the social 
and physical barriers. The physical barriers are more apparent. There are those barriers to infrastructure with the physical building, um, getting around some of the ways that the rooms, the furniture that is placed in these different rooms and that sort of thing. But there are also the, the social barriers that I experienced that I distinctly saw a difference in when before you couldn't see the disability. And so now that people could see my wheelchair and they saw me, there was definitely a difference in the way that people approached me. You could feel these vibes like people were afraid to come near you. I almost think of the term now that we are so familiar with it of social distancing. It kind of felt like people were social distancing themselves from me. My third year of college got hit by a car and I flipped over the hood of a car twice and shattered my whole right side, had to learn to walk. And that also started me on the journey of really taking seriously chronic illnesses that I had before, even though it would take me more than half a decade afterwards to even accept that I was a disabled person. I understood how fragile belonging was because inside of my group, inside of my system, I'd felt belonging in my university. And when I became disabled, I didn't anymore. Many individuals who acquire a disability are confronted with the reality that belonging can be fragile. We live in a society where ableism is rampant, and in some ways it can be a rude awakening to be made aware of that after having been asleep to it. But what about the stories and experiences of those who have lived with disabilities all their lives? That's been the case for both Steve Bowler and Marta Russick, who have lived with disabilities since they were born, although neither of them were diagnosed until into their adulthoods. Steve, a.k.a. Stand Tall Steve, is an educational thought leader, author, and motivational speaker. He wrote the book Ideas, 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 and he's the creator of the podcast, The Stand Tall Leadership Show. I did a writing assignment for this art series class. My major was art education. And it was an impromptu writing. And I'm like, oh, God, you know, <laughs> here we go. So did the impromptu writing. Da, 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 da. I completely understood everything. I really, really did. And the, the professor, Dr. Burkett, next time that we had class, she was just straight up like, I get what you're saying. It's absolutely your thought process is there. It's beyond there. But you can't spell to save your life and your grammar is a hot mess. And I was just like, yeah, it's just the way I am. I'm trying, you know. And then that's when she was just like, are you dyslexic? And I was like. I have no idea what you're talking about. I, I didn't even I didn't even heard the word before. Never even heard the word before. I was like, I don't know. So that's what she was like. I want you to go get tested, or whatever. And to me, I'm just like, I'm not gonna go anywhere. I'm not gonna. I'm just, you know, it's a college kid. You know, no. As he persisted, each class he persisted, I, and I even lied to her and said, Yeah, yeah, I went. I checked in today. She's like, No, you didn't. I said, No, nah, no, I didn't. You know. <laughs> and then eventually, she's like, after class, I think like maybe the fifth or sixth class after the original time to say it. It was after class. She said, Steve, I need you to come with me. And I'm like, okay. I had no idea where we were going. I love Mrs. Dr. Burkett. She was a lovely lady. I wouldn't not go with her. And she walked me right to the student center area and talked to another professor guy. And they sat down. They, they went through words and reading and explained it and all that stuff. She stayed there the whole time for the whole thing. Yeah, you dyslexic, man. You, you, you're not just little dyslexic. You bad dyslexic. And I was like, oh, okay. And then when they explained what it was, I still didn't get it. What really made the difference through that experience was when they had me come back a couple of times and they were 
working with me to help me cope with the dyslexia, giving me strategies. The thing about the strategies that they were giving me and sharing with me, I'd say out of 12 different strategies, I was already doing about 11 of them on my own, highlighting words so that they become clear, tracking with your finger or with an item as you're doing it, using a ruler going down as you're reading with it. There's all these different strategies, and I'm sure that there's many more. I'm like, oh, yeah, I do that. Oh, yeah, I do that. I already do that. This is the thing, if you ever magically step away from yourself and have a conversation with yourself, I would love to have said to myself then, thank goodness you didn't just say, well, this place is no good. I already do everything. They're no help. Instead, I thought, wow, the why not me thing actually worked. And I started to think, would I have been successful as I am if I had known I had dyslexia before? Or would I have used that as a crutch to say that I can't do something? And I still struggle with that, that conversation as to what would, I have, what would I have been like? What would I have done if I had known about this sooner in my life? Would I have been like, oh, you know, hey, put him in special ed, he's dyslexic, or he's not able to do something because he's dyslexic. Would I have had that why not me attitude if I had known that then? If you want to learn more about Steve's why not me attitude and his philosophy of believing in each of our unlimited abilities, check out the link to his TED Talk, Why Not Me, which we'll post in the show notes. But the point he made about social stigma and the bias of other people's low expectations was also something that came up in my interview with Marta Russick, a digital storyteller with a passion for helping mission-driven organizations tell their stories. Marta works full-time as a social media strategist for a nonpartisan, pro-democracy legal nonprofit in Washington, D.C., and she maintains a freelance client roster as a storyteller for hire. We didn't know that I was an autistic person until I was an adult. Well, and to my parents' credit, they loved me and they instilled in my sister and I that ask for what you want, express your needs and go after it. And that's really served me well. And I I wonder sometimes would that have, I think they still would have taught me that, but would the rest of the world have looked at me as you are a child of infinite potential and whatever you want, you can go after. Would that have been true if we had known then what I know now that I'm a person on the autism spectrum? And I don't know. It's easy to see how the rampant social problem of underestimating and undervaluing individuals with disabilities contributes to low disclosure rates amongst those with disabilities, especially invisible disabilities. That's something diversity researcher Sabrina Volpone thinks a lot about. Sabrina is an associate professor in the Organizational Leadership Division at the University of Colorado's Leeds School of Business, and she uses both qualitative and quantitative methods to understand how organizations manage their diverse workforces and how diverse individuals flourish through the management of their identities at work. Choices of how we talk about our identities are relevant for both visible and non visible identities. However, there are a number of different identity management strategies and tactics that are more available to people with non visible identities, which makes the decision process around identity management better in some ways because you get to have more agency over when you disclose, if you disclose, how you disclose, and can maybe even think more about that 
before you engage in a situation where you disclose to your boss or you disclose to your coworkers. But at the same time, that's more of an onus and burden in addition to having to do identity management, which, you know, why can't we just be in organizations where we don't have to do that? You know, the onus should not be on people with stigmatized identities having to do additional emotional labor and cognitive, just thinking about how to manage their identities. And so while it can give you more agency over when, how, if I'm going to disclose something, it can also make that process have more steps, be more cognitively weighing on you because then those decisions you, you know, you do think about more and ruminate about more. And if it goes bad, that's on you because you were the one who decided to disclose and maybe you thought you read a situation wrong. And then that's even more on you, which it never should have been on you in the first place. While we should never mandate or expect any person to share more about themselves than they are comfortable sharing, it's important to work to create environments of inclusion so that individuals with disabilities can live their fullest, most self-actualized lives, which will enable organizations to benefit from their contributions and experiences. After all, individuals whose needs and abilities aren't typical are often the most equipped to arrive at innovative, non-typical solutions. Will shared a lesson that he learned early in life that really ought to be incorporated into corporate organizational mindsets. I'm the youngest in my family. My hometown is St. Louis, Missouri, and all three of my older siblings have intellectual disabilities. My two brothers are on opposite ends of the autism spectrum, and my sister has Down syndrome. And I saw from a really early age that they had trouble accessing the internet, especially as it was evolving. And I started realizing as I was getting older that it wasn't that they had trouble accessing the world. It was that the world was made inaccessible to them. Here's Bev again. We focus so much on getting people with disabilities like prepared for work, getting them to change who they are to fit into the the holes that are out there. But we don't focus as much on preparing the world to welcome them. Something else Bev shared with me was that even from a young age, many individuals with disabilities are socially conditioned to focus on their liabilities rather than their assets. Sure. So what what we realized first is that when students with disabilities going through kind of a traditional school-based setting, a lot of times they're made very aware of their challenged areas, (laughs) we'll say. The documents we have in the special education world is kind of based on like, here are some of your strengths, but here are your needs. And we're going to write all these goals around your needs. Our first program really addresses, we kind of had to take it, but we're like, before we just start connecting people to jobs, a lot has to be done to kind of undo some of the marginalization and some of the thinking that happens in these students' minds. They've been really having their deficits pointed out to them for a long time. And most of them, I would say, not even a lot, most of them don't even know where they're great. They don't even know where their strengths are because the focus was, well, you can't do this and you can't do that. Not on what you could do, what your abilities are. Slobodan raised the same issue. In thinking about neurodiversity and, uh, and, and work, I think there are basically two aspects. One is you want to help neurodiverse individuals. No, you want to help them improve themselves in ways that will help them become more productive or more able to sustain jobs and grow their careers. 
But on the other hand, there is this other side, which is kind of society, which is kind of how society actually perceives individuals who are neurodiverse and how well they're understood and how actually what kind of behavioral accessibility there is, right? So for for you know the kind of society to actually make the neurodiverse people kind of better integrated into society, right? So I think kind of we work we need to work, I guess, on both ends to really make some kind of better success. I'd like to share a few examples of how individuals with disabilities often acquire skills and talents that either come from the disability itself or come from how they've learned to navigate the world as a result of living with a disability. Here's Steve again. I really had to be comfortable with who I am. And not just a little comfortable. I mean, mega, I am very comfortable with who I am. I know what I'm good at. I know what I'm not good at. And I'm okay saying I'm not good at this. You know, I'm fine with that. I'm still horrible with numbers. I know I'm horrible with numbers. Numbers and me just, they don't get along. I, you know, calculator, give me calculator. It's only a couple of digits. I don't care. Give me a calculator. And people say, I can't believe that. You cannot believe all you want. I know who I am. I know what I'm not that great at. This is what it is. And that continual ongoing pursuit of knowledge and ongoing pursuit of learning more about myself and what I can share with others is huge. And Marta. Versatility is important to me because as an autistic person, I'm just interested in so many things. It's in my DNA. It's an extension of my identity as an autistic woman. It's an extension of somebody who values knowledge and lifelong learning. And I think all of us need to keep an open mind and be open to educating ourselves and finding truth happening in the world all around us, particularly in organizations that are that are doing good and, and serving the greater good. And I wonder, I think if someone really is genuinely interested in accessibility and genuinely interested in activism, I think being too hyper-focused can actually be counterproductive to that. Yes. Co-signed. I would agree with that. If you place limits on what you can do or what your boundaries are for learning, you do tend to limit yourself. So for me, versatility and accessibility isn't just about like what I'm doing right now. It's something to keep me alive and engaged and connected to the world around me. Cameron Footman also attributes his versatility and creativity to the way his mind works. Cameron is the first voice of Indigipedia.ca, a lifelong entrepreneur and technology advocate, and the founder of Woodcrest Construction, a contracting company which specializes in welding and steel fabrication, with a focus on heated furniture and art and metal works. I have ADHD. I was diagnosed when I was a, a teenager. I was never medicated for it. I've kind of just learned how to I don't know if it's my uh, superpower sometimes and a crazy hindrance other times. I've got a million and one ideas, like the notepad on my phone is just out of control. I'm a daydreamer. When I'm sitting there, not able to sleep because my head's pacing at a million miles a minute, and I'm thinking about these crazy designs or, oh, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And then finally, like actually finishing it and being like, yeah, that, that wacky thing I was designing in my head as sitting in front of me. That's pretty cool. Cameron shared with me that as a result of his ADHD, he's learned to harness his creativity through physicality, which is how he makes his living. I'm essentially fidgeting in my garage with tools in my hand, you know, and it's kind of cathartic. 
These past few years have really illuminated how important it is to care for our health. The place where I go for all my health and wellness supplements is Vita Supreme. Vita Supreme uses all organic ingredients and has a wide range of supplement options that can help with immune support, heart health, energy, mental health, pain relief, sleep, anti-aging, digestion, diabetes, and more. Their products have helped me reduce joint pain and increase vibrancy. And if you read their online testimonials, you'll find glowing endorsements from their customers who at every age and stage of life are feeling better than ever. Vita Supreme believes that health radiates from the inside out, and I can tell you from personal experience that their supplements have made a positive difference in my life. To receive 10% off your first order, go to vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity. Your discount will be applied at checkout. There's no code required. Also, as a special offer with your first order, you can receive a free 15-minute coaching session with one of their wellness experts to find out more about what you can do to improve your health and your habits. Just send your name and preferred contact information to support at vitasupreme.com. Once again, to get 10% off your first order, go to vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity. And to receive your free coaching session, email support at vitasupreme.com and tell them the Demystifying Diversity podcast sent you. Through innovative and dynamic educational initiatives, Temple University's Fox School of Business provides students with real-world, local, and global business opportunities. At the Fox School of Business, you can choose from a wide range of undergraduate, graduate, certificate, and continuing educational programs. Whatever your academic and professional path, you'll learn practical strategies for workplace success at a university that is committed to encouraging and respecting diversity in all forms and perspectives. The Fox School of Business, which includes the Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture, has built an inclusive, welcoming environment where everyone is emboldened to reach their full potential. So if you want to be in a learning environment that will empower you to cultivate your capacity for empathy and profitability, go to fox.temple.edu slash DDP for more on how you can learn from world-class DEI-focused faculty and become an inclusive leader in the workplace. So if you want to be in a learning environment that will empower you to cultivate your capacity for empathy and profitability, go to fox.temple.edu slash DDP for more on how you can learn from world-class DEI-focused faculty and become an inclusive leader in the workforce. With options for students and professionals at every stage of life, including undergraduate, graduate, certificate, and continuing educational programs, the Fox School of Business has something just right for you. So make sure to check out fox.temple.edu slash ddp to learn more. There are also those who don't themselves live with disabilities, but whose interactions with those who do have shaped how they interact with themselves and the world. 
Sharona Pearl, an associate professor of bioethics and history at Drexel University, is a historian theorist of the face and body who has authored numerous books, scholarly essays, and freelance articles. She told me about how, as a historian of the face and body, her proximity to and experiences with individuals living with disabilities has helped liberate her from oppressive attitudes about not only the bodies of others, but her own body as well. So I do a lot of collaborations with artists. Recently, I did a wonderful collaboration with the incredibly talented portrait artist and disability activist, Reva Lehrer. She's extraordinary. Her work is extraordinary. And she brings a sense of thoughtfulness, but also a commitment to a consent between artist and sitter that is really unusual. It's a really interesting ethic of portraiture that manifests in her technique and methodology. And when you're working with a portrait artist, you think more about how you look. And she was surprised at how kind of unselfconscious I was. People are pretty concerned with how they're represented. And she mostly paints disabled people who are so used to being stared at in a particular kind of way that they, I wouldn't say lack that self-consciousness, but have an innate comfort with posing. Whereas the able-bodied people she works with tend to get a little more uncomfortable. So I don't know if it's because there's a history of disability in my family, or I don't know. I also am aware that as a white cisgendered woman, a lot of those challenges just don't confront me in the same kind of way. So the way that I look is pretty easy culturally and socially. Yes, Sharona is a white cisgendered woman, an identity that is pretty culturally and socially easy, as is being a white man. I promise to let Tom Edwards, a white neurotypical man, share about how working with one particular individual with autism early on in his career has had a positive impact on him, both personally and professionally. Probably the first individual I worked with who was on the autism spectrum, although I didn't understand it at that time. You know, he was just different, kept to himself, preferred to work late at night, you know, wouldn't make eye contact with people, just different. But I didn't know what that meant back then. I didn't work with him really closely. He, he had this very specialized ability to make us, it's called it, I'm going to get geeky here now, a six degree of freedom simulation. So when something flies through the air, it has six degrees of freedom. It can go up, down, sideways, back, forth, and it can rotate, pitch, and yaw. So it's got six different things it can do. And he could simulate all that and the interaction with the aerodynamics and what that means for drag and lift. And oh my gosh, this it's just, and when you're building something that flies in the air, if you just test it and try it, it gets really, really expensive to keep trying new shapes. So you simulate it. And this guy could make this computer work. So it was a critical, critical part of the, the project. Um, first time chief engineer. So here I am scared of my team, a really tough problem. And my management has no faith in me, right? What could go wrong? So this is my first time as a chief engineer. And I got to get this simulation done by this fellow. And so I was going to go talk to him. And one of my other guys who must have had some personal life experience with autism pulled me aside and said, let me talk to him. Let me talk to Bill. It's my job, man. I'm the chief engineer. You know, I got to make sure everybody's glued together. I don't need you to talk to him. And this guy who's normally a very, very laid back guy, he dug his heels and says, let me do this. I said, all right, okay, okay. You know, you feel that strongly about it. There must be something I don't understand. So he went off and he did this. And I watched the conversations and this fellow that he was talking to that could run the sixth off was, you know, not making eye contact, looking at his shoes, shuffling back and forth, the whole conversation, just absolutely no clue that he was hearing a word of what was being said to him. He disappeared for three days and came back with the results. 
And he'd come back and he'd brief his buddy and his buddy would brief me. And I'd say, well, what about this, that, or the other thing? And he'd say, I don't know. Let me go find out. And he'd go back and talk to this guy. He'd disappear for another three days and come back with the results. So all I had to do was like, get out of this guy's way and not insist on, no, I'm the chief engineer. I want to look him in the eye and take the measure of him and all this nonsense. I just had to not be a hard nose and just understand that be a little humble and say, maybe there's something going on here that I don't understand because normally laid back people are making a stand on this. Maybe I had to cut them some slack and, and, and give them credit for knowing something I don't know and let them try. And that worked out really great because what this guy did with that six stop simulation, if I was going to do that myself, I'd still be there doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, actually I wouldn't because I would have gotten fired long before <laughs> that because I would have never been able to do it. So this, this was a critical, critical contribution that this guy could make. And all I had to do was find a way for him to fit in. Because if I had forced this guy to act like me, that wouldn't have ended well. Towards the end of our interview, I shared my perspective about Tom's professional achievements. And he shared with me how the quote-unquote conventional leadership wisdom of the time would have hindered both his and his direct report success if Tom had made the mistake of trying to force a non-neurotypical individual to contribute in neurotypical ways. I actually wonder if your career trajectory would have been quite as successful if you didn't have that really successful experience with that team, much of which could be attributed to the contributions of that neurodiverse person who enabled you and your team to do something that nobody thought you could do. Absolutely. If that program had not succeeded, okay, I would not have been sent to manager training at the world famous GE Crotonville facility. I would have not gotten the first promotion to manager of mechanical engineering department. Absolutely. If if I had crashed and burned on that career trajectory would have been very different. And it was based on a lot of things, but it was based at part on this, this guy who probably on the spectrum that could make this contribution and me being, I don't know. And I mean, I had people, people whom I trusted and respected telling me, Edwards, you're chief engineer now, man. Your job is to take names and kick butt. Really? You want me to yell at people that have twice the experience I have? I, that does, that sounds like a suicide mission. I just don't, I don't get that. If these guys aren't 110% on board, you know, really trying and trying to do their best, I'm going to fail at this. It was hard to do, but I ignored that advice and just kind of followed my instincts that this was a foolish and this was a, this people I respected. They're knowledgeable people, but I'm glad I ignored that advice and, and instead worked with, with everybody on the team and found a way for it to fit in. Because you're right, my career trajectory would have been very, very different. I probably wouldn't be sitting here if I didn't have the advantage of that GE management training. Yeah, different trajectory. Slobodan and Sabrina also shared how non-neurotypicality can be a real asset in the workplace. Each one of us sees the world in different ways, you know, and we all have our own talents. Uh, and in particular, neurodiverse people, they kind of tend also to see the world in different, different ways. And then there are certain skills that uh, come with, with some, some of it. For example, you know, anecdotally, I guess uh, it's, it's been observed for some neurodiverse people tend to have better attention to details, which might be very important, for example, for the information technology field, where attention to detail is one of the kind of key skills that you might have. 
there's been a number of countries that their defense department, so we're talking military, right, have really reorganized and transformed their HR processes to be more inclusive of individuals with neurodiversity. And what's interesting about that is there's been kind of case studies of them showing how they've created divisions within their hiring and within their employees and their human resource management. And you can understand how maybe analyzing satellite images or something like that, it's like certain and there's so many different types of neurodivergence, and neuro, but in some specific instances, how certain skills, like being very focused on a select set of things at a time and other strengths that go along, in some cases with certain types of neurodiversities, how they are changing some of their HR procedures and also their culture to harness that and leverage that in a way that makes their nation safer. Like, how cool is that? Really cool. In fact, over the course of these interviews, I heard a lot of cool stories about the positive impact individuals with disabilities have made within their workplaces and communities when given the opportunity. Having said that, I don't want this episode to become, well, I'll let Will describe what it shouldn't be. There's kind of a crude statement and there's a, a TED Talk that's about it called inspiration porn where oftentimes you see these videos that are on social media of somebody that's in a wheelchair struggling to get upstairs, and you see this inspirational video of someone helping them up the stairs. It gets millions of views and likes, and people are so inspired by that. And I ask myself the question of why wasn't there a ramp there? (laughs) Those are the kinds of things from the portrayal of the disability community is that it's driving the point that people with disabilities are to be pitied exactly what Tainer alluded to. It's a point that I bring up in conversation a lot is that what I would love to see in media moving forward is when you have a character with a disability, their character arc and their personality is not their disability. That's when you're starting to truly advocate for true inclusion where their identity is not their disability, it's them as a human being. All people hold within themselves a myriad of identities and experiences. We live vast, multidimensional lives, and because of that, we're not interchangeable. No two people of any identity will be exactly alike, which is why when it comes to representing those with underrepresented or marginalized identities, even if we acknowledge common threads in their experiences, we also have to embrace diversity and individuality it's a lot of pressure when you feel like you need to represent your whole marginalized community and in the disability community, because I might live with autism. Am I also representing somebody with someone that uses a wheelchair for their mobility or, and that I think is a, is a very serious issue. And I'm not sure there's an easy answer to that. Cause I do see that happening. Like we tried it and it didn't work, but thank you. You know, <laughs> like, Oh, okay. It's like Jenny, who's on our board, tells a story. She got a job at Chuck E. Cheese and her job was getting ready for the kids' birthday parties. And she had to put five video coins in like a little pouch. And each kid at the birthday party got their five video coins to play their games. And counting to five was something that was challenging for her because of her intellectual disability. She's a brilliant board member for us. We don't ask her to put five coins in a bag because that's not her strength. But it was, you know, the next time someone approached them, they're like, oh, yeah, we had somebody here and it didn't work out. 
And often I see that happening when there's not education and preparation ahead of time and like open, honest conversations instead of just plopping people in places and expecting it to work out well. If we want to make workplaces more accessible, we have to adopt more nuanced approaches to equity and inclusion. And before you run out and sign up for a diversity training, not all diversity trainings are inclusive of those living and working with disabilities. In fact, in conducting his research study, Slobodan had an important realization. I kind of wanted to, to also mention another thing. It's really not directly related to the study, but something I thought is, it was interesting. So I kind of ran into this during this project, which is a very interesting thing. It's about sensitivity training, and I find it very relevant for this issue of neurodiverse uh, people finding jobs in, in any industry, really. You know, sensitivity training is part of it is about, you know, how to avoid disrespectful conduct. You know, how do you kind of have a good report with your, you know, coworkers and so on and so on. And kind of what I found interesting is, when you look at some of those presentations or slides that related to sensitivity training, you have certain kind of expectations that, you know, those uh, kind of, so, so for example, expectation is that a worker should be socially aware, should be able to read the coworkers' nonverbal cues and body language, should uh, keep improving the soft skills. And then it, it says that soft skills are one of the most essential skills in today's workforce. And then when you talk about kind of reading these nonverbal cues, then you say you have expectation that you should be able to read facial expression, body language, to understand the tone of voice and kind of to be very crafty with, to recognize when that, you know, person you talk to wants to end up converse, end the conversation and so on. And I think some of those expectations, in my mind at least, might be challenging, right, for, for some of the neurodiverse individuals. So I kind of find it interesting or maybe something kind of to really kind of think more, you know, especially for those, uh, you know, entities kind of building the sensitivity training through the sensitivity training should not exclude necessarily maybe people who are not that capable or they're not well trained maybe to read somebody's facial expression or body language, for example. Hey, listeners, Zach James here, partner and marketing manager of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. And I wanted to share with you some of the great things we're doing in the DEI space. Since the beginning of 2020, Myself, Darylise, and our DEI team have facilitated numerous corporate trainings, engaging workshops, one-on-one -on -one coaching sessions, and so much more, both virtual and in person. To find out how you can work with us, whether you are an individual or representing an organization, school, corporation, or any other type of group seeking diversity, equity, and inclusion education, head over to DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com backslash DEI services to send us a message or to fill out our DEI survey. Darylise is a DEI subject matter expert, having interviewed over 300 people, becoming a TEDx speaker, as well as the author of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Together, we can help you up-level your DEI skills to improve your productivity, profitability, and interpersonal relationships. So connect with us at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com 
backslash DEI services and get yourself a copy of Darylise's book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. And don't forget the workbook too. Happy learning. In becoming more sensitized to the various flexible and dynamic needs of those living and working with disabilities, workplaces need to focus on building their capacity for disability readiness. Here's Tanner again. So disability readiness is literally your ability to receive, enable, and support a person with a disability as they come through your company. Like Slobodan, Tanner cautioned against thinking that conventional DEI trainings, methods, and metrics can simply be transferred to disability preparedness and inclusion. So many people, they have confidence, they have some artificial confidence from traditional DEI strategies and tactics that they apply to disability inclusion because it's all under this bigger umbrella of DEI. And yeah, there are totally African-Americans who are blind and there's totally Asian-Americans who have dyslexia and every different race and gender and sexual orientation um, has a disability. But those same requirements, those same needs that people of racial, sexual orientation or gender diversity those same needs that for those demographics are completely different and do not satisfy the needs for the various needs, the dynamic needs, the ever-growing needs, the changing needs for people with disabilities. I can't wake up one day and be any less white, but I might be less able to see or more able to see or more depressed one day or less depressed, or my ADHD is going crazy today. I, do, I can't get it under control, or I'm really laser focused. And so we have this dynamic, oscillating, moving target that's disability and inclusion. And when we use traditional approaches, tactics, and strategies to do that, I think that's how companies might be unintentionally being exclusionary, but somehow still being intentionally exclusionary. Uma agrees. A lot of companies are coming out now saying, we're making our workforce inclusive. Our workplace is going to be safe for everybody. We welcome neurodiversity. That's wonderful. But if I have a sensory need, I'm not going to fit into your typical workflow. I'm not going to be interested in that water cooler chat or maybe some other thing that goes on in that workplace. And so providing trainings not only to HR leaders and managers on hiring and conducting interviews, but also for staff. And again, here, we're not asking that one person to raise their hand and say, hey, guys, I'm the reason you're taking this training. I have a sensory need. But these trainings can be applied outside your workplace with loved ones, with neighbors, at church groups, etc. With increased social awareness and education and an expanded mindset among typical individuals, those living and working with disabilities won't have to continue to encounter inaccessible and inhospitable environments. What's more, formerly inaccessible environments can be restructured to optimize the contributions of employees with disabilities or individuals with disabilities looking to enter the workforce. It's about how do we integrate everything together? Um, How do we bring all voices to the table and make sure we're listening to and addressing all voices? When endeavoring to cultivate environments that are inclusive, it's important to build our capacity for disability readiness in advance and continually, regardless of visibility or disclosure rates. 
As far as employers, you know, we've got the training that that we provide for hiring purposes. If somebody feels comfortable in disclosing their sensory need just to their managers, we need to let managers know how to better manage when everybody's working on a group project, just like we do different personalities. So just creating that foundation and making sure everybody is set up for success. Some people love to talk about their their sensory need. So you might have an employee or a colleague who is openly sharing, and then you might have somebody who doesn't really want to talk about that. So it's it's very much case by case. There isn't necessarily a cookie cutter like this is your protocol, this is your rule book. But starting off by providing that education and awareness is is a really good first step. An additional element to be aware of is how much the contributions of disability-specific modifications improve the quality of life for people of all identities. In fact, many of the things we use on a daily basis were invented in order to meet the needs of the disability community. A few examples include electric toothbrushes, good grips, speech-to-text and voice recognition apps, fidget spinners, bendy straws, audiobooks, and curb cuts. And if you're thinking, what are curb cuts? There are those slopes at the end of the sidewalk that were created for individuals with wheelchairs, but have proven incredibly helpful for delivery drivers, people pushing strollers, and anyone else who might benefit from easier access to a sidewalk. In fact, there's a term, curb cut effect, that refers to those innovations and interventions that, although designed to benefit vulnerable groups, end up benefiting all. Here are Will and Tanner again. I'm going to butcher this a lot, but I remember reading about how we have those little divots that are in the sidewalk to walk into the street. You have the curb, but usually when you're at a crosswalk, there's the divot at the bottom. Those initially were made for blind individuals to cross the street properly. But there's so many inherent benefits that come from that, from delivery drivers that need to push something up onto the sidewalk, to people that are bringing in grocery carts or strollers. By making the inherent experience accessible for someone with a disability, you actually made it more accessible for so many other use cases. Will only butchered it a little. The divots were created for those in wheelchairs. But the point that's critical is the impact of the curb effect. Accessibility has positive implications for a myriad of individuals and is beneficial to the social collective. So those are the kinds of analogies that I like to give that showcase that accessibility isn't going to be compromising anything that you're doing. There might be some bumpers per se, as you're going on this journey from a design perspective. But as you're going along, if you're really embracing this mindset internally and externally facing, it's not that difficult to do as long as you follow the roadmap that Tanner and I provide. Think about closed captioning. When closed captioning first came out, everybody was complaining about extra costs. It's going to slow us down. And now it's just a part of how we do things. And how many people use closed captioning? Like how many people watch videos on mute and just read the closed captioning? There's so many benefits to universal design that we don't know right now. My ex-wife, her first language is Spanish. And when we would watch video with audio description, the description of the words in providing context to what's happening gives her additional vocabulary to express and communicate herself. And because of that, her language has excelled, her communication capacity has improved, and all because of a digital accessibility solution for someone who's blind or visually impaired. 
Making the physical and digital world more accessible to individuals with disabilities has had and will continue to have a positive impact on workplace culture. And in addition to logistical benefits, meaningful engagement with individuals with disabilities or with anyone who holds a historically marginalized identity forces people to look at their own biases and beliefs. We live in an ableist society, and it's been that way throughout history. Sharona told me that in her work as a historian of the face and body, she was advancing conversations about ableism, inclusion, accessibility, and bias long before she recognized that her work was and is informed by and supportive of disability advocacy. I had to give a talk after grad school uh, at UC Davis and the wonderful and incredibly generous disability scholar Catherine Cudlett pulled me over and said, you know what you're doing is disability studies. And I was like, say more. And that's actually, so there's a lot of disability in my family. So I think I was drawn to the body for a variety of complicated reasons. Also the body and the face in particular are just really neat places to ask a lot of different kinds of questions. Hey listeners, Zach here. Darylise and I are so grateful you've tuned in to season three of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. You probably know by now that we've partnered with Temple University's Fox School of Business to bring you this special season dedicated to DEI in the workplace. With that in mind, we ask that you send us your work-related DEI questions by calling 844-888-8148. Just leave a message with your question or send us a note through our website, www.demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. As always, we'll be joined by some amazing guest experts and thought leaders who can also weigh in on whatever questions you have. Again, the number is 844-888-8148 or message us through our website, demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. Who knows, your voice or your question may just make it into one of our Q&A episodes. Happy listening. Some of the questions I've been asking myself lately as someone who lives with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, and some questions I'd encourage everyone to ask of themselves, whether they live with a disability or not, are, where am I holding ableist attitudes? How do I judge my body and the bodies of others? What inaccurate perceptions do I have about what it looks like to live and work with a disability? And how can I take the focus off of cultural ideals around who I'm supposed to be and simply be who I am? It's not so much about what your body can and cannot do, but what we perceive your body can and cannot do. I do think we're seeing an expanded set of notions about what counts as interesting and valuable ways to look, particularly as we think more expansively across the gender spectrum and gender identities and self-presentations. The disability study scholar, Rosemary Garland Thompson, talks about the normate, right? The idealized normal body to which we all aspire that on some level is fundamentally impossible, although some people can get closer to it than others. Or the theorists Deleuze and Guattari talk about the ideal face and all the deviations away from it, which is for them one of the sources of racism. So you have this idealized white cisgender male face that everybody can only be a degree away from to a certain extent. So there are all of these cultural pressures on appearance. But having said that, we're seeing much broader diversity of bodies. We're seeing much wider acceptance. We're seeing less pressure on that. Now, how successful 
any campaign that is motivated by a company that wants you to buy something, even if they're showing diversity of body types, is something we can sit and interrogate. But I think on some levels, there has been movement. Positive movement, whether that looks like dismantling our judgments about ourselves or whether that looks like making workplaces more accessible for those whose bodies and brains may not thrive in quote-unquote typical environments, can only be achieved by interrogating existing social norms, expanding our perspectives, and being willing to let go of what we think we know and do things differently. And that requires dismantling social stigma, which can only happen if we're willing to develop meaningful connections with those who navigate the world differently than ourselves. Here's Bev again. We believe the greatest way to reduce stigma around disability and any marginalized community really is to get people proximate to each other and working together on a, so not not this model where school kids will say, you know, oh, I'm going to help the kids in the special ed room today. That's pretty one-sided. So we're like, well, actually they have a lot to teach you too. So why don't we come in do an inclusive volunteer opportunity where you're all working on the same project. And usually the kids with disabilities will be the ones leading you because it's the people we empower. So we tell people with our corporate events, I used to do like these traditional corporate lunch and learns where I'd be very prescriptive almost lecture at people. You should be more diverse than you're hiring. You need to. And that, you know, you can't change anyone's mind for them. So we said, you know what, that's, that's not nice. That's not working. So we started to say, Hey, can we come in and engage your team and giving back and volunteerism aligned with your own corporate values? We'd bring in our leaders with disabilities and then these CEOs and HR professionals would see people with disabilities in their own buildings, interacting with their own staff. And that's how the mind shift happens. One CEO, when we were leaving, it was about 150 people we were engaging. And he said, I just want you to know that if Moad is one of my leaders who I brought out with me and who lives with autism. And he said, if we had someone like Moad on staff here, our corporate culture would be much better, much different for the better. And I could have lectured that at him and gotten nowhere, or he realized it himself just because he saw Moad lead. I'm not going to lecture at you, and I can attest that lecturing at myself about my own beliefs about my body and its physical functioning have never worked. But I can tell you that I was inspired by the leadership example of someone with a disability. In fact, it was Elizabeth's vulnerability, openness, and example that gave me the courage to disclose my chronic medical condition to you. But in order for Elizabeth's story to be inspiring, she had to move from a place of concealment to confidence. You may be wondering how she got there. When the pandemic happened, I was looking for opportunities to get more involved because now everything is virtual. I don't have to deal with expending my energy being on campus that, hey, now if there's something that I want to do, you can just log on and be a part of it. The first thing that I did was a fellowship that was based in Uganda and Rwanda. And this was over the summer. It was a five-week program with the Global Livingston Institute. I got to be in small groups with other students looking at developing the the program that they gave me was the I Know concert series. And so we were looking at how to make their concert series better. And so that was supposed to help raise awareness about I Know My Status for HIV. And so we were looking Mm -hmm. how to make that even more successful. But we also had almost every weekday we were online 
with different professionals that were from all over the world, including from um, Uganda and Rwanda. And we were speaking and learning a lot from these different professionals. And it was this was the first time that I was virtual. I didn't have to pretend that I had a disability. I didn't have a disability. I was just myself in the space. And I would write in the chat. I would unmute. I would talk. I was very engaged. And there was no pushback from people if they wanted to talk to me or interact with me. It was just, that was the first time I had that experience. And that was what started this idea of why is there's this divide. Because of the increased accessibility that virtual learning offered, Elizabeth was able to show up as herself, which supported her in being more authentic and feeling safe in sharing her story with others. During GLI, um, the the Global Livingston Institute experience, I met with other fellows from that program. I met with professors in the fall, and I met with other students. And I told them about my experiences of in my wheelchair, not in my wheelchair, and how people were acting. And I was telling these students and, and people were, they were listening. And I felt like this was the first time people were hearing me. And there was one student in particular that I told who said, I hear you. And I think that you would be great as part of our student government. And I said, oh, okay. Um, I said, I haven't been involved with that. It was always in the evening where I would have to stay even later in the day. And now it's virtual. So I was like, okay. And so I became the accessibility senator for the student government. And in this role, I worked closely with the Office of Accessibility. And so then I was speaking to people from the Office of Accessibility about what I experienced. And not only that, but over the summer, I took a course called Listening. And in that course, it was about how you have to listen to yourself before you can listen to others. And so I did some deep diving into myself over the summer, and I shared with them the sorts of things that I learned about over the summer regarding this identity shift and everything. It was then that I said, what can I do on campus to make it more accessible where you feel like you can just be yourself on campus and it's okay to be yourself. After her deep dive into herself and after becoming the accessibility senator for Rollins College student government, Elizabeth felt empowered to give back to the disability community. So much so that she and one of the professors at Rollins, Dr. Sarah Parslow, co-created an accessibility and inclusion research study in which they interviewed 16 students with disabilities about their educational experiences, both in-person and remote. Through that process, Elizabeth learned a lot about the ways in which subtle and overt acts of exclusion impacted others as well as herself. By the time she returned to campus, she was determined to bring a fuller version of herself to her in-person education. But that doesn't mean Elizabeth was without insecurities. She simply had more supports, both externally and internally. I stayed virtual up until spring 2021. And it was in the fall was my first time returning. And I remember as we were doing this research, I was also keeping a very detailed, it was like autoethnographic research where I was keeping a detailed account of my change in perspective. And one of the things I wrote in that journal was that I was afraid that if I'm returning to campus, and this will be my, my first time returning to campus using my wheelchair again, 
that it's going to go back to, again, this, this fear of returning normal, it's going to go back to the way things were. And that I was afraid that I might go back into that mindset that I was in before took a lot to, to think about what this identity means for me. And so when I transitioned back in the fall, I now had somewhat more of a support system because I've shared now with a lot of professors, students, and I've done this research now that I've in my own, uh, we interviewed all these interviews we did were about an hour long. And so I had like 16 hours of talking to students that I felt like there was more of a community that I didn't realize was already there. So when I returned in the fall, I had more confidence in myself and who I was. And having this confidence, I continued to serve on different leadership roles on campus. It's been going good. There are those challenges that were there before with infrastructure and some social barriers from, it depends which setting you're in, depends on the people that you're with. I found that when I'm engaging in um, a lot of my work, though, most of the settings are more welcoming than they were before. But it does depend on the setting that you're in, because I have still experienced quite a few things that are not the greatest that would need addressed further. Let's further address the barriers and biases that get in the way of so many individuals showing up as their full selves and experiencing meaningful, purpose-driven employment opportunities. Let's commit to making our workplaces accessible in advance and then inviting people in. Because the disability community is full of individuals with a wide range of experiences, perspectives, and identities whose ways of filtering and navigating the world make them an asset to inclusive organizations. But even more importantly, accessibility is a basic right and a moral imperative. We owe it to each other to build disability-ready workplaces, and the only way to do that is to learn from those who live and work with disabilities. Can we move forward differently to foster greater equity? Even if we don't always understand fairness, we can and should demand. Let's embrace one another, single colleagues, working mothers, people of all points of view. Can we see each other through? Thank you to this episode's guests. Bev Weinberg, Tom Edwards, Slobodan Vucetic, Uma Surivastava, Elizabeth Smith, Alita Miranda Wolf, Tanner Gears, Will Bubinek, Steve Bowler, Marta Russick, Sabrina Volpone, and Sharona Pearl, and to our episode sponsor, Vita Supreme. Every episode of this season of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by me, Dara Lise Lyons, with Azaria Keys, Assistant Director of Sedwick, Co-Producer and Coordination Consultant, Leora Eisenstadt, Sedwick Director, Assistant Producer and Consultant, Zach James, Co-Collaborator and Marketing Manager, Paul Kondo, Assistant Producer and Editor, Jimmy Goodman at Leopard Studio, audio technician and consultant, Stuart Kraintz, production and development assistant, and Sunny Taylor, content editor and creative collaborator. The music you heard is Demystifying Diversity, an original composition, the lyrics of which were written by me, 
Darylise Lyons in collaboration with Ramon Beeftink, who also created all the music and performed vocals and instrumentals. If you'd like to explore these topics outside of the podcast, pick up a copy of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity, wherever books are sold. Join us next week for a question and answer episode. And in the meantime, let's keep trying to make this a better, more inclusive world.